May my words be in the name of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. This morning we have two stories that speak to us about the strangeness of religious experience where the writers are running to catch up, as Giles was indicating to us. The first is about Elijah, greatest of the Hebrew prophets, as he passes on the baton to Elisha as his successor, and Elisha witnesses Elijah's being taken up to heaven in a whirlwind, complete with chariots of fire. The second is the account of the transfiguration, where a select group of three of Jesus' disciples is caught up in a visionary religious experience on the mountaintop. And it's that story I want to concentrate on this morning. We ask ourselves, what's going on? What's the point of this strange story? What is ever the point of this kind of intense visionary religious experience? It would be nice to think that for Peter, James and John, it is a way of strengthening and clarifying their understanding of all that has been and all that is yet to come in their relationship with Jesus. But there is a cross and a tomb and there are abandoned grave clothes and all these things must come into play before the rapturous vision on the mountain uh, begins to make sense and becomes part of a story that will renew the world. Now, this isn't to knock intense religious experience. The visions and voices recorded in the scriptures are not some tacky exercise in self-indulgence or self-centeredness. Whether they occur on Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, on the banks of the River Jordan, on the road to Emmaus, or on the road to Damascus. Such revelations of the glory of God are always and everywhere intended as a source of inspiration and encouragement for the building up of the whole community of faith, for growth in wisdom and hope, for the proclamation of the good news of God's presence and love. They serve to unleash a torrent of spiritual energy and commitment in the people who are touched by them. Uh, in shorthand terms, they are moments of disclosure. They're pictures of what it means to be open to God. Now here's a view, not so much from the mountaintop as from the fields below. It doesn't come from scripture, but from an unlikely witness to an extraordinary personal experience. A fearless investigative journalist for the New York Times and a novelist. Barbara Ehrenreich is a fully paid up member of the Awkward Squad, a bit like one of the Old Testament prophets. Her book, Living with a Wild God, takes us to a place of testing and self-examination where all illusion and delusion are stripped away. She describes herself as an atheist and a vocal one for most of her 77 years. 
But in that memoir published back in 2014, she reveals that she had an experience when she was 17 years of age, which she has struggled to understand ever since. After driving through the desert, Barbara Ehrenreich spent a night sleeping in her car on the side of the road at Lone Pine in California. And then in the early morning, she went for a walk. This is part of her story. The Reverend Liz now is going to read it for us. In the next few minutes on that empty street, I found whatever I had been looking for. Here we leave the jurisdiction of language where nothing is left but the vague gurgles of surrender expressed in words such as ineffable and transcendent. For most of the intervening years, my general thought has been, if there are no words for it, then don't say anything about it. Otherwise, you risk slopping into spirituality, which is, in addition to being a crime against reason, of no interest to other people than your dreams. But there is one image handed down over the centuries that seems to apply, and that is the image of fire, as in the burning bush. At some point in my pre-dawn walk, not at the top of a hill or the exact moment of sunrise, but it's in its own good time, the world flamed into life. How else to describe it? There were no visions, no prophetic voices or visits by totemic animals just this blazing everywhere. Something poured into me and I poured out into it. This was not the passive beatific merger with the all as promised by the Eastern mystics. It was a furious encounter with a living substance that was becoming at, that was coming at me through all things at once and one reason for the terrible wordlessness of the experience is that you cannot observe fire really closely without becoming part of it. Whether you start as a twig or a gorgeous tapestry, you will be recruited into the flame and made indistinguishable from the rest of the blaze. Ecstasy would be the word for this but only if you are willing to acknowledge that ecstasy does not occupy the same spectrum as happiness or euphoria, that it participates in the anguish of loss and can resemble an outbreak of violence. The function of the desert was to cauterize an open wound I should have died that day or given a nice, to give it a nice Buddy Holly ring. That should have been the day that I died. 
I don't mean by this that the rest of my life has been a weary slog. Far from it. But the stories seem to end here, or at least that was my strong sense for years to come. In my early 20s anyway, when I carried on with the mechanics of living in a jaded spirit of someone who knows she has overstayed her visit, seen all the sights and been unable to find any further way to make herself useful. I could not speak of it because I lacked the words and I could not recapture the experience any more than a burned out filament could be used to light a fresh bulb. When people run up against something inexplicable, transcendent, and most of all, ineffable, they often call it God, as if that were some sort of explanation. I fell back on this semantic sleight of hand once in my life, myself once in those first few weeks and instantly regretted it. My friend David and I were driving in LA, Los Angeles, when he asked me how the trip had gone. I said something vague and hesitant, which naturally led him to start nosing around more aggressively until at last, in a spirit of verbal economy, I blurted out, I saw God. I could see from the wolfish look that came over his face that I had made a terrible mistake because of course he wanted to know what God was like. This was totally embarrassing as if I'd been caught in the act of plagiarism or more precisely, antiquities theft. Why would I want to apply the ancient well-worn notion of God to that force of power or energy I'd encountered on the Lone Pine, which bore not the, the slightest resemblance to anything in the religious iconography I had grown up around. There had been no soulful, long-suffering face no accompanying cherubs or swooning Madonna, no face at all, in fact. God in the prevailing monotheistic sense is a curious bundle of admirable or at least impressive qualities, including omnipotence and cosmological creativity. As for the most highly advertised property of the Christian or Jewish or Islamic, God, that he is good, in, in fact, morally perfect. I had no evidence of that, derived either from epiphany or from more conventional forms of observation. The epiphany, if I may call it that, seemed to be best understood as an explosion, a calamitous natural process like an earthquake or a storm, leaving behind it what is known in science as a rent in the fabric of space-time. Something was broken. Things no longer cohered. The world was becoming increasingly hostile 
and still I had to try to make my way around in it. Phew. Well, there's more. What Barbara Ehrenreich calls the wild god is the god of transcendence and intimacy encountered in scripture, in the writings of the medieval mystics, even, dare I say it, recorded in a journal entry by a fastidious Anglican clergyman on the 24th of May, 1738. John Wesley's experience of his heart strangely warmed utterly changed the direction of his life and vocation. Uh, but as recorded, it comes nowhere near the intensity of what Barbara Ehrenreich calls an explosion, an explosion which has haunted her adult life. Experiences as different as these still have the power to speak to us of the transcendence of the God of the big picture, as well as the intimacy of the God of small things. It's not an exaggeration to claim that every Sunday, whether we're gathering physically or online as we are today, we're trying to capture something of these two dimensions in worship the transcendent and the intimate, an encounter with the holy, the transformation or transfiguration of day-to-day -day realities. It's a delicate balance as well as a matter of temperament and taste. For some, it is poetry and music and mystery that emphasize the otherness of God. For others, it is about immediacy, informality and intimacy uh, that uh, encourage a sense of the closeness of God. Decency and due order, the freedom of the spirit. I like to think that our tradition in Methodism is about both and rather than either or. It has to be some combination of the transcendent and the intimate. And just as importantly, a recognition that the worship of God's people is always more powerful when the spiritual and the material are closely interwoven. This is about our human need for ceremony. Ceremonies for birth and death, for love, for the changing of the seasons and the rites of human passage. Ceremonies for a vision of a new world and for dealing with the problem of evil and for the great mysteries of creation, self-sacrifice, suffering, faith and resurrection. Part of our Methodist heritage has made us distrustful of a lot of this. We trust words rather than ceremony or horror of horrors, ritualism. But the word didn't become flesh simply so that we could turn him back into words again. 
we do not worship only with our minds and reasoning. True worship engages the whole person. Feelings, the will, our intuition, our bodies, as well as the intellect. Such worship should enable us to name our truth in ways that have meaning for us. Just as important are the visual, the dramatic, the silent, the creative, and the playful. So much of our worship is still passive reception. Some still think that participation is a bit radical. But liturgy means the work of the people, not the work of the preacher. You can hear drums, it's my neighbours next door. We talk about the priesthood of all believers, but do we mean it? So when we come to worship, we bring the whole of ourselves. Worried about bringing up kids. Worried about being alone. Struggling with the responsibilities for the care of aging parents. About strain in a marriage or a relationship. Or being under enormous pressure at work. Or fearful of sudden redundancy or furlough anxious about living on a reduced pension or about the entitlement to benefits or what it feels like to be a victim of racism or labeled because you are a single parent or gay or disabled or have a mental health problem or living through a pandemic. These are the things that concern people for most of their waking hours and these are the issues that disturb their sleep. We come to connect all these things with the God who is both transcendent and intimate, whose love is for us and not against us. The God who in Jesus Christ calls us to see the transfiguring power of a relationship of love, openness and trust, and all the potential for human flourishing within that. We come to discover, perhaps rediscover, ways of connecting worship and the rhythm of the church's year with the whole of life. This is not a matter of remote grand abstractions. The story of Jesus is the story of the God with dirty hands, the muck and the stench of the stable where he was born, the calloused hands with which he worked in a carpenter's shop, the spit of soldiers that dribbled down his tortured face. All speak of the God who so completely identified with the human condition and the material world, that our struggles, sorrows and disappointments become his own. So Christmas isn't just turkey and tinsel. It is what we do with the awesome responsibility that God has been delivered into our hands. Harvest Thanksgiving isn't simply nostalgia for a vanished rural past. It's a celebration of the skills of hand and brain, self-worth and survival. Easter isn't spring flowers and chocolate eggs. It is bearing the mark of the nails seen in the hands of the risen Christ 
into the world through our hands to suffer and serve till all are fed and show how grandly love intends to work till all creation sings to fill all worlds to crown all things never underestimate the power of the sacraments of the church to make visible the connections between the spiritual and the material for us in a way that words alone never can both baptism and holy communion have a way of expressing essential truths for us in ways that are unsurpassed water bread wine there are no more powerful symbols of the freedom and grace of God. What all our worship is seeking to do is to ensure that the everyday can be transfigured by an encounter with the holy, that the material in human existence and the spiritual in human existence are not bouncing off each other at a tangent, but are integrated. We come to church to cherish and nurture the claim that God is for all life and in all life. That in the words of Saint Irenaeus uh, of Lyon, uh, reflected in our epistle reading this morning, that the glory of God is a human being fully alive. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. We worship to give expression to God's reality and our humanity, both in the refreshment and renewal of the human spirit and in the creation of God's community of love, justice and peace. Let us pray. O oh God, whose beauty is beyond our imagining, and whose presence we cannot comprehend. Show us your glory so far as we can grasp it, that we may become fully alive to the potential you have implanted in each of us, and that we may go forth to be your people in the world. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.